Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by author and retired New York City police officer, Vic Ferrari. Vic, you know, we've all heard about the New York City police for different things, for Ground Zero, for all type of stuff that they're one of the top police forces. They got stuff that other police forces don't have, but Vic has worked for him and He's going to be talking about some behind the scenes stuff and and what he did and all that good stuff. So here we go. Vic, thank you so much for joining me today. Officer Ferrari. Curtis, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. I'm a Bronx kid, born and raised in New York City. Always wanted to become a police officer. When I was 20, I took the New York City police exam. By 21, I was in the academy. I had a 20, a wonderful 20 year career. I worked in plain clothes 15 out of my 20 years. I worked in a lot of different units, mostly in the South Bronx and Manhattan. Uh, I worked in the, uh, the narcotics division for a while. And then my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So everything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, car thieves, you name it, we did it. After I retired, I got into writing and I've written a series of books, four of which are a, a humorous behind the scenes look at the New York City Police Department. So what actually made you want to be a police officer? Oh, when I was a little boy, I mean, growing up in New York City in the 70s, you had all these television shows on and movies. And, you know, my parents, you know, during the holidays would take me to the movies and I would see these cop shows. And I just as a kid, you play cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. And that's what I wanted to do. I just I wanted to be involved in the excitement. I used to love when I'd see the police cars racing around the neighborhood, said to myself, you know what, I want to do that when I get older. So what was it like to actually work for the New York City Police Department? We, we all hear a lot about it, but what is it like to actually work for them? It's a lot different than when you <laughs> what I saw and thought perceived what I saw in television and movies. It's it's a lot more structured. There's a, a lot of rules and regulations. There's a lot of do's and don'ts. People think that it's glamorous, and sometimes it can be, but I like to tell the story. I work 17 out of 20 years down at Times Square every New Year's Eve. So when friends and family, you know, are, are celebrating, ringing in the new year, I'm freezing I'm freezing to death down on 42nd Street with drunks, you know, that are ringing in the new year. And you get there about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and you don't go home until everybody leaves till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. So you're working a lot of hours. Your hours can change at a moment's notice, but I loved every minute of it because it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of excitement, but, you know, after a while, after 20 years of it, it was time to get off that merry-go-round. Completely understand that. Well, one of the, one of the big things the New York City police officers are known for, as well as the fire department in New York City, is ground zero. So, did you have any dealings with that? And can you describe what that was like around that time? 
Yeah, I was down there that day. My office was in the Bronx. I had arrested a guy months before that was going to flip and become a confidential informant. I had a meeting that day at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office with a district attorney and the um, the guy, the defendant's defense attorney, and we were going to hammer out a deal for him to be an informant. And I was supposed to be down at Manhattan Criminal Court by 9 a.m. Well, it's 8 a.m. and my sergeant hadn't come in yet. And then he comes breezing through the door and I says, come on, we're going to be late. And while he was getting ready, one of the cops from downstairs ran into our office and said a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So we put on the news like everybody else. We were watching it. Second plane hits. We knew it was terrorism after that. Call from call came from downtown. Everybody getting uniform and standby. And by 1.30, we were down there walking around and it was... Uh, it was wild. I mean, you know, there wasn't a lot of people. By the time we got down there, it was kind of like a ghost town down there. Um, debris flying around everywhere. The closer you got to uh, ground zero, the darker it was because of all the, the dust and, and ash that was flying around in the air. It was difficult for the sunlight to get through. So it was like a, a twilight haze in the middle of the day. If you can picture that, I remember us walking down Broadway and I remember seeing thousands of pairs of women's high heel shoes just covered in debris. And you had so many women that worked on Wall Street in the financial district when they were fleeing, they couldn't run in their heels. So they just threw their high heel shoes and ran barefoot. And it was just, it was, it was like something out of a movie. Like you saw the hot dog trucks were left behind. People left their cars in the street. It was literally like something out of a movie. And I was down there probably from 1.30 in the afternoon till about 5.30 in the morning. I got dismissed. We were told, take your clothes, run it through a washing machine because of all that stuff we had all over us and be back at work at 530 at night. And uh, we were doing 12, 14 hour shifts down there for about the first week. Then they pulled my unit out. And then as the debris was getting sent out to the dump out in Staten Island, they had us out there. And since I worked in the auto crime division, they were using us to. So you had these cars that were crushed. And as they were getting pulled out of the rubble, they had us cutting them open with, you know, like the jaws of life and stuff to make sure there wasn't anyone had been trapped in there. But we got calls back and forth. Like the NYPD was rotating in and out for a while. I was doing the bucket brigade, which um, you put a line of people that goes up to a section of the pile and you fill up a bucket with debris and it gets passed down the line to the very end where, you know, people go through it. And then they started bringing in the heavy equipment and then, you know, taking larger pieces of the wreckage out of there. Wow, that that's just incredible to be uh to know that you were a part of that. Well, what what kind of practical jokes do cops play on each other? And I know you guys got a lot of time, you know, with each other. So what kind of practical jokes do you play on each other? Oh, cops are like the biggest kids. You don't see it like when you deal with a cop in the street. You, you, most people think they don't have a sense of humor. But yeah, in the locker room, there, there's constant practical jokes going on. I like to tell the story when I was a detective, someone once poured a cup of ice water into my chair. So I sat down, I got a wet ass and everybody was laughing. And I thought it was funny. And I changed my slacks. I went downstairs and across the street from the precinct was a pet store. I bought a bag with 100 crickets in it. And I went out into the parking lot and I used the Slim Jim to open the door of the cop that soaked my chair. And I opened up the bag and dumped all the crickets in the back seat of his car. 
And when he was going home that night, he slammed on the brakes and jumped out of his car because they were whizzing around by his head. And the poor guy wound up having to sell his car because he kept roach bombing it and they kept breeding and he couldn't get rid of them. So, I mean, it was a beat up car to begin with and he wanted to get rid of it, but he wound up having to sell the car because of all the crickets. But we were always doing, you know, be it pulling up on another radio call with silly string and spraying it through the window, or we would wait till another radio call would go into the station house for their meal hour. We would get into their car and pour cornstarch down the AC vents and then put the air conditioning on high. So when they got back in the car and started it, the air conditioning would blow out all that cornstarch all over their uniforms. And they'd have to go back into the station house and get changed. Wow, you guys are crazy. Talk about the strangest thing that has happened to you while you were a police officer. Oh, there's been so many strange things. I mean, you want funny strange or funny scary? Give us both. Give us, give us both. I'll give you scary. I mean, I've walked into, I've walked into a couple of homicides where both times, you know, we were called there. We didn't know what we were getting into. One particular time it came over as a cardiac and we went into this apartment. There's a young man laying on top of his mother who had been stabbed to death. There was blood all over the walls. And, you know, when you cut your finger, your, your blood is bright red, but the blood on the walls and everything was like a rust color. So we knew that she had been there for a while. So, you know, we told the son to have a seat, just relax. And, you know, he went from being hysterical to the second and we weren't putting the screws to him. We were just asking him regular questions. And every time we he went from being hysterical to very controlled. So whenever we would ask him a question, he would repeat the question. So we knew something was up. The apartment was ransacked, but it was staged. So when a burglar breaks into your house, they just take everything out and dump it. They don't go through the trouble of putting the drawers back in. So we we knew the apartment was staged to look like there was a burglary there. And the next day, basically, that night when the detectives were talking to him, he didn't ask for a lawyer, but he wanted to go home. So the detective sent him home. And the following morning when the detectives went to interview him, he was in the hallway with his uncles who were yelling at him in Spanish, like, what's going on? What happened to your mother? And basically, he confessed to them with the detectives in the hallway that heard the whole thing. So he wound up getting some. He's still in jail. So that's like 30 years ago for killing his mother. Wow. And, and, and what's one of the strangest, funniest things that's happened to you? Strangest, funniest. Um, that's morbid too. When I was in the police academy, they wanted us to get a taste of death because they knew we would be dealing with it. And they took us to the morgue. And I thought the morgue was going to be like an episode of Quincy. <laughs> and it was like a Jiffy Lube. There was like eight bays and you had multiple doctors working on multiple bodies. And I just couldn't believe in the morgue just how blasé they were about everything. You know what I mean? Like they were kidding around and joking. I mean, they were doing their jobs, but I mean, it was just, it was like watching a couple of people behind the counter at Starbucks. You know what I mean? As far as just their uh, nonchalant, okay, his brain weighs two pounds, you know, next, you know what I mean? So I just said to myself, Jesus, I mean, really opened my eyes to the other side, you know? Yeah. I've been in a cadaver lab before and yeah, they just like, oh, here's the, Here's the kidney, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, all right. The time I was in the morgue, you had some kid that was shot multiple times. He was, I think, duct taped or, or hog tied. And the ME was using this tool that looked like a needle nose pliers that was pulling the slugs out of the body and dumping it in this metal bucket. 
and there was a detective there eating an egg McMuffin, drinking a cup of coffee, hanging over the ME's shoulder. And I guess he was being a pain in the ass to the medical examiner. And he says, well, what do you think? And the medical examiner goes, suspicious suicide. And everybody started laughing. So there's definitely a gallows humor that goes on in the morgue. Right. Well, tell us about some of the car theft rings that that you've busted during your career. Oh, there was so many. One case that I worked on, you had these these guys from the West Indies, and they were on the west end of the Bronx, and they they were stealing cars in the Bronx and also Westchester County. So we did a joint case, and what these guys were doing was they 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 were stealing cars for like an underground racing circuit, like illegal street racing. So if some kid blows a motor on his BMW that he's racing. He's not going to go buy another one stock for five or $6,000 from BMW. What these guys were doing was they were going up to Westchester County and, and in some cases the Bronx. They were stealing these, they were breaking into people's garages and stealing these high end cars and bringing them back to the Bronx and chopping them. And what was unique about this case is not only were we able to charge them with the stolen vehicles, we were also able to charge them with burglary, which was a heavier charge than just stealing a car because you're entering and remaining in someone's home to commit a crime they're in. And one of the thieves attached to that case, he was so into BMWs, he had the M3 insignia tattooed on his calf, <laughs> which I had never seen something like that before. And when we arrested him, he had an M3, a stolen M3 in his garage. Wow. Well, tell us about your books. Tell us about where we can get them and what readers can expect when they read them and why you actually got into writing. Sure. So if if your listeners go to Amazon and they go to the book section and they just type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car, my my, uh, Amazon library will come up. I have four books about the NYPD. One is called NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Another one is called the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and NYPD Law and Disorder. All my books are humorous behind-the-scenes look of what goes on inside the NYPD, colorful criminals, cops I worked with, police corruption, what's it like to be a cop, how I got started, what goes on behind the scenes like at Times Square or parades or demonstrations, and a lot of things people would never think that police are responsible for. Well, tell us what it's like to be at a crime scene. I know you talked about one crime scene, but I know there's all different kind of crime scenes. But what is it like to actually be at a crime scene? The one thing you never want to screw up is a homicide. And that's usually within the NYPD. What you'll see with the NYPD is the detectives that work in homicide are the best, in my opinion. And the prosecutors that prosecute homicides are the best. They're the sharpest. Why? Because you don't want to take a chance of a murderer getting away. So when you're a cop and you get called to, you know, something and then it turns out you're standing in the middle of a homicide, you try to do as little as possible and touch as little as possible. You want to secure that crime scene. You want to set up a perimeter where nobody can come in. You don't want people using the phone in that location. You don't want people coming in, tr- walking through it, walking through through blood or body fluids. You don't want somebody coming in there and smoking a cigarette. You don't want somebody, a relative going, oh, I just want to get my phone or I just need to get something in there. no. What, what, once we determine that that's a crime scene, no one's using the phone. It's basically you're going to stand back and wait for the detectives to arrive. Once the detectives get there, they're going to look around a little bit and they're going to wait for the NYPD's crime scene unit to come and process it for, you know, blood, hair, fingerprints, fibers, 
Then the detectives come in and they start taking pictures and measuring things. And then they start they start asking questions. And as a cop, while you're at the crime scene, you start talking to people in the crowd because and you're going to get their names because a lot of times someone that's in a crowd, they saw what happened. They know what happened. But since there's a million people around, they don't want to be seen talking to the police. So you just start getting everyone's name and phone number so the detectives can contact them at a later date where they might be more comfortable coming forward to the police. Well, tell us about if you met any celebrities during your time as a police officer and also talk about some of your most interesting arrests you made. Sure. So in my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus, there's a chapter in there called Rubbing Elbows. And I did meet get to meet a lot of famous people in New York. So as an NYPD cop, especially if you're in Manhattan, you're driving around and you'll see those Panavision trucks, the camera trucks, the craft food service trucks with it, where they're doing a movie shoot. And a lot of times we would stop one of the people working there and say, Hey, what are you filming? And they'd say law and order, or they'd tell you the name of the movie and Hey, who's in it. And sometimes we get to meet some of the people on the movie set. I got to meet Julianne Moore Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond, Kevin Bacon, F. Murray Abraham, who won an Oscar for the movie Amadeus. He was the guy in Scarface that got thrown out of a helicopter. Columbo, Peter Falk, which that's a funny story because I saw him crossing the street on Fifth Avenue and he pretended not to be Peter Falk. And I says, listen, I know who you are. And then finally he came clean. I also got to meet a lot of famous heads of state, Baki Moon from, from South Korea, Benjamin Netanyahu. So as an NYPD cop, you're going to get to meet a lot of famous people. Do you have any current or upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? Yeah, I'm working on another NYPD-themed book. I don't have a title for it yet, but I just released a book, which isn't about the NYPD, but it's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. And it's about growing up in the Bronx in the 70s and 80s, and me not wanting to go to Catholic high school, but it was in reality, it was the best thing ever happened to me that it got me ready to become a New York City police officer. Well, throw out your contact information so people can keep up with everything that you're up to. Well, thank you, Curtis. If your listeners want to get a hold of me, they can get a hold of me at VicFerrari50 on Instagram and Twitter. All right. We'll close this out with some final thoughts. Maybe something I forgot to touch on that you would like to talk about or just any final thoughts you have for the listeners. Sure. All my books are in paperback. They're 10 bucks. They make great stocking stuffers. They're two ninety nine ebook downloads. If any of your listeners want to get a hold of me through those contacts on Twitter and Instagram, be it they got a question or they're a new writer and, and they want to get into writing and they want to know the process or, you know, wants it again, an interview or just has a question, they can get a hold of me on those forums. Absolutely, listeners. Be sure to support Vic. Go pick up his books. He definitely has a lot of interesting books and interesting stories as a NYPD officer. If you like this episode or the show in particular, please be sure to tell a friend, follow, rate, review, share the show to as many people as possible. Officer Ferrari, thank you so much for joining me today. Curtis, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. dream.